Well, it's very good to be with you. Thank you for your invitation to be with you. Thank you for, for being here. Um, our topic is, why does God care who I sleep with? That is the question that we are asking today, and it's a good question. Um, it's very easy just to, to scroll through the news feed today, and we are not short of, of awful things that are happening in the world. There's warfare, there's injustice, there's poverty, there's abuse. And so we, we could very reasonably say, well, if God is there, doesn't he have bigger things to worry about than what people do in their bedrooms? When I'm speaking in different contexts, this is probably the question I, I most often hear. Why does God care who I sleep with? Hasn't he got bigger things to deal with? But it's not just a, a compelling, understandable question. It's a deeply personal one. Because when we talk about the whole issue of sexuality, we're talking about something that is part of our own stories. Part of the, what the Bible shows us is that God has created us to be sexual beings. He's given us sexual energy. That was his idea. We didn't discover this behind his back. He created us with this in mind. And all of us will have some story about what that has meant for us how that has been for us. And for many of us, that story will be a painful story. And I'm very conscious I'm treading on sensitive ground. For so many of us, everyone has a story, and maybe for some of us, our story involves hurt and vulnerability. There'll be some of us watching and listening today who feel damaged when it comes to sexuality. Maybe there'll be some of us who, who feel conscious of ways we might have been damaging to others. But we all have a story. Uh, mine is like that of many people in this city, and I'm sure a significant number of us who are, are watching right now, which is the only real romantic and sexual feelings I've experienced have been for other men. It took me a long time to realize that. I was a teenager in the early 90s. It was a very different cultural context to what we're used to today. Uh, we didn't really talk about these things. The same categories of sexual identity that we've been thinking about through this series were just not available then. And so it took me a while to realize what was going on. I remember when my best friend first started dating a girl. I was 14, 15 maybe at the time, and we were all catching up on each other's news. It was a Monday morning. We were catching up on each other's news from the weekend, and my friend said, oh, I, I just got together with this girl. We just started dating. And I remember all my friends were really excited for him. They were congratulating him. Now, I'm, I'm British, and so when I say we were excited, what I mean is, we, we, when we're excited, we do things like this. We go, huh. <laughs> but for us, that's, that's really excited. So my, my friends were excited that this guy was now dating. And I pretended to be, but inside I felt crushed, and I didn't know why. I hadn't consciously thought of my friend in a romantic way. But looking back on it, I was already deeply emotionally attached to him. And so the thought of him being 
really close and intimate with somebody else left me feeling very insecure, very threatened. And over the next couple of years, I, I just became aware of ways in which I was different to my friends. Um, I was at an all-boys high school, um, and so there were only two things we ever talked about, sport and girls. I'm not very good at sport. Okay, I can't catch a ball to save my life. If it's possible for your center of gravity to be outside of your body, I think mine is. <laughs> and I began to realize I wasn't very good at talking about girls either because the feelings my friends were describing, I, I couldn't really relate to. I had girls that I, I loved being friends with, but I just was not having those same feelings of attraction that my friends were. And it was painful. I, I didn't want to be different. Often, as, as we would all be chatting, that the question would, would go around the group, who do you like? Is, is there someone you're interested in? And I, I would sort of feel the tension rise in myself as that question worked its way around to me. And I would, for a moment, kind of panic and think, I've, I've got to have an answer to this. And my brain would be saying, Sam, just think of the girl's name any girl's name will do, just say that name out loud and then you'll be fine. So they'd say, so who do you like, Sam? And I'd be thinking, um, um, Denise. Yeah, Denise. Yeah, I like Denise. And the, the relief would only be momentary because they would then say, well, who is she? Do we know her? And I'd have to say, um, I, don't, I don't think you know her. She's, she's not from around here. She's from Sweden. So no, you, you don't know her and, and won't ever meet her. <laughs> but it was difficult. I remember one day, I was about 17, standing at the bus stop waiting for the school bus um, on my way home one day. I still, this was still before I was a Christian. I remember standing there and thinking to myself, I think I'm gay. And it was the first time that thought had occurred to me. But the moment it did, I suddenly thought, yeah, that, that's what's going on here. I'm, I'm having these feelings for some of my male friends, and I'm, I'm not having these feelings for girls. And as that began to sink in, I began to think, okay, well, what am I going to do with that? And I remember thinking, okay, when I go to university, that's going to be when I explore this. I was applying for schools that were all in other cities, all far away enough from, from home, and I thought, okay, maybe I can explore these relationships when I go to university, and no one at home will ever need to know. But in between standing at that bus stop and arriving at university, something else happened. <laughs> I became a Christian. Hadn't planned to was just minding my own business. <laughs> but a dear friend of mine who was a, a Christian invited me to his church's youth ministry. I couldn't think of an excuse not to go quick enough, so I said, okay, I'll, I'll come along. Went along. I wasn't seeking. I wasn't looking to connect with God. I was just going along to tag along with my friend. And it, we heard a, a message about Christianity, and I realized for the first time that my impression of Christianity was wrong. I had always imagined Christianity was about God congratulating good people. 
But I began to hear for the first time that Christianity is about God finding lost people. And something occurred to me in that moment. I suddenly realized if God was there, if God had made me, I didn't know him. And I was probably supposed to. And I thought, yep, that's probably my fault and not his fault. And therefore, I'm lost. So I began to really appreciate that Jesus came to find the spiritually lost. I began to understand that he not only came to to look for us and to identify us, but to give his life for us, to die for us, to rise again for us. And felt compelled to follow him. I remember thinking, if, if Jesus has done that for me, this is someone I can trust my life with. So I became a Christian. But you can imagine one of the questions I then had as a new Christian was, well, having just kind of begun to realize about my own sexuality, what what does Jesus say about that? Where does he land on that? And it might be a surprise to many people today to think that Jesus had anything to say on this at all. It's very common to think today that Jesus had lots to say about justice and the poor and the marginalized, but he doesn't have much to say about sexuality, that Jesus is kind of neutral when it comes to this. Now, Jesus doesn't often talk about sexuality, but when he does, he has really significant things to say. And I want to share with you a particular passage that has been one of the most foundational for me. It's in Matthew chapter 5. I'll read it in just a moment. Um, And what I want to persuade you of is, is three things from this text. Firstly, that there is no one who is more challenging when it comes to sexuality than Jesus. Challenging to all of us. Secondly, that there's, there's no one more dignifying when it comes to this area than Jesus. And thirdly, and this will take a bit of explaining, it's a weird word to, to think about in this context, there's no one more satisfying to the human heart when it comes to sexuality than Jesus. So let me read this, this text Um, to us all. Matthew 5 verse 27, Jesus is speaking. He says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now this is from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, It's a a famous section of, of teaching from Jesus. Even people who don't know much about the Bible will will recognize parts of the Sermon on the Mount because it is so penetrated Western culture. And in this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is taking some of the Old Testament commandments and he's contrasting how those commandments have been understood with what they really mean. So he's not taking issue with the commandments, he's taking issue with how they've been interpreted, how they've been received. And that is what Jesus is doing in the verses I just read. Our understanding is that Jesus would have been speaking most likely to an an audience of overwhelmingly Jewish men. 
And he says to them, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And they would be thinking, yeah, we, we have heard that. We know that. We've been, we've been taught that many times, Jesus. We know the Ten Commandments. They knew that the Old Testament had always said that sex was only for marriage between a man and a woman, that all other forms of sexual intimacy were, were forbidden. They knew that. But more than that, many of those men, maybe the vast majority of them, would have been thinking, Jesus, we, we not only know this commandment, we've kept this commandment. We, we've been faithful in our marriages. We've not cheated on our spouses. We've not meddled in anyone else's marriages. We know this stuff. We've, we've done this. And maybe some of, the, some of them are thinking, yeah, you... you you got us with a couple of those other commandments and that's fair play, but with this one, we're, we're feeling good. Well, Jesus follows up, <laughs> you've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, with the words, but I say, and I wonder in that moment what his listeners were thinking. Jesus has said, You've heard, don't commit adultery, but, and maybe they're thinking, ah, is, is Jesus going to loosen this up a bit? <laughs> and we know how we would complete Jesus' words today. And our, our culture, is, as you, we've been thinking about in this series, as Ashley has shown us, we would complete Jesus' words in our culture by saying, I say to you that you've got to follow your heart. You've got to be true to yourself. That is our culture's answer to this issue. That's what we would have Jesus say. But Jesus says, everyone who looks with lustful intent has already committed adultery in their heart. So here's our first claim. Jesus is uniquely challenging when it comes to human sexuality because Jesus is showing us this commandment wasn't just about external behavior. It's about our internal attitude. It's about the way we regard other people. Jesus is saying adultery doesn't just take place in the bedroom. It takes place in the heart. If I can put it in these terms, it's not just about what you do with your genitals. Jesus says it's about what you do with your eyes. It's about how you look at someone. It's about what you do with your mind and how you, how you think about someone. And Jesus is saying if you look at someone lustfully, you've broken the commandment. You've gone against... God's design for human sexuality. Because when you're looking at someone with lust, what you're doing is you're turning that person's sexuality into a commodity. You're turning it into something that is there for you to consume. You're turning it into something that exists to satisfy your particular appetite. Whether you're talking about satisfying it physically or just mentally. And here's why it matters. Jesus is saying, you're not just breaking some random arbitrary commandment from centuries ago. 
You're going against the grain of how God has made you. You're going against the grain of how God has designed sexuality to work. Again, as as Ashley showed us a, a couple of weeks ago, In our culture today, we tend to think of sex as being about self-expression. It's one of the key ways we, we kind of express and fulfill who we are. But in the Bible, sex is about self-giving. It's actually about giving the entirety of who you are to another person in a way that is exclusive to them and which is designed not to be undone. So in Genesis 2, with the account of of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve are are literally made for each other and we see them get together in, in Genesis 2 and we're told that they become one flesh. And that's a that's a fascinating term, one flesh, because physically they're still two separate bodies, right? They don't merge into one body. They are still two separate physical bodies, but they're one flesh because at some profoundly deep level, God is uniting a husband and a wife together through sex. That is why the Old Testament said sex is only for marriage between a man and a woman. And in the Gospels, we find Jesus teaching the very same thing. In Matthew 15, 19 and 20, Jesus talks about how sex outside of marriage is sinful. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 6, Jesus talks about how marriage is between a man and a woman. Now, I don't need to tell you that those are massively countercultural things to say today, they are not easy things to hear. They're not easy things to say. But Jesus does say these things. And he says them because of the vision the Bible gives us for human sexuality. Uh, Quite a few years ago, there was a kind of weird Tom Cruise movie called Vanilla Sky. Um, I love a lot of Tom Cruise movies. That, that's not my favorite one. But there's a great, there's a great line in it. <laughs> uh, in the movie, Tom Cruise's character has had a one-night stand with Cameron Diaz's character. And early in the movie, she confronts him and challenges him. And she says to him, when you sleep with someone, your body makes promises even if you don't. When you sleep with someone, your body makes promises, even if you don't. Weird movie, great line. That is the way God has designed sex to work. Not merely to to be a form of, you know, procreation, but to be a, a, a means of profound unity between a husband and a wife. And this is what is behind the covenant, about, behind the, the commandment not to commit adultery. And Jesus is trying to show us the issue is our hearts. 
What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount here with these, with these different commandments is he's showing us these commandments were never given to us so that we could prove to God just how obedient we are. You know, set us the challenge and we will, we will clear the bar kind of thing. No, Jesus is showing us that God has given us these com- commandments to show up our natural incapacity in our hearts to follow God's ways. He gave us these commandments to show us that we were always going to relate to him on the basis of his grace to us, his forgiveness of us, never on the basis of our super obedience to him. And so Jesus is using this commandment against adultery to show us our hearts don't want to keep this commandment. that our hearts are naturally adulterous. Now, I'm British, you're American, and so it's not wise for me to talk to you about dentistry. <laughs> but when I was living in the UK, I would, I would have a, a yearly visit to my dentist. We do have dentists in the UK. I know there are at least 15, I think, in the country now. Um, but here's the thing. When I, when I had a, an appointment at the dentist, I knew I would have an appointment sometime that morning. So that morning I would get up and I would really clean my teeth. I mean, I would burn a good number of calories brushing my teeth. Uh, blood would be flowing from my mouth by the time I finished, right? And so I would show up to the dentist thinking, he's going to be impressed. And I'd get there and the dentist would do the usual dentisty things of prodding and poking and all that, that kind of stuff. And then at some point, the dentist would give me a little cup of some colored liquid and he'd say, just rinse your mouth out with that, spit it out, and it will show up the dirt on your teeth. And I'd think, not these teeth. These teeth are clean. Olympic level clean. So I'd get the cup, I would rinse my mouth out, I'd spit it out, he'd show me a mirror, I'd have to smile in front of the mirror, and my whole mouth would be brightly colored with this dye. And he would always say to me, listen, I know you brush your teeth, but there is always far more dirt there than you realize. And that is what Jesus is doing with these commandments. He's saying, listen, when it comes to our hearts, there is always far more dirt there than we realize. And these commandments show that dirt up because when we hear the commandment not to commit adultery in our hearts, we can't keep it. Jesus is showing us that we misuse our sexuality. We misuse our own. We misuse other people's. So please... Let's get this really clear. The message of Jesus was never, you guys begin life pure, and you've got to kind of keep and maintain your purity, and the moment you mess it up, you've ruined everything for the rest of your life, and you will forever be damaged goods. That was never the message of Jesus. Jesus' message was, you have an adulterous heart. You never were pure. Which is why we need him. Jesus is saying to us, all of us, just in this area of life, all of us need his mercy. 
All of us are broken in this part of life. All of us are sexual sinners in our hearts. We're all in the same boat. And therefore, within the the Christian faith, there is no place for looking down on someone else because of their particular kind of sexual sin. There's no place for demeaning anyone else. Jesus levels the playing field. Now, our sexualities and our attractions and the shape of our desires will vary massively from person to person here. But if there is one kind of sexual sinner that Jesus is not good news for. He's not good news for any of us. Now, as I began my life as a Christian, as I began to come to terms with with what Jesus says about these things, I became aware of two things. The first was that it wasn't going to be right for me as a follower of Jesus to explore same-sex relationships. I couldn't do that in obedience to Jesus. If I was going to follow Jesus, I had to say no to those desires. But I also became aware of what Jesus demands of every single one of us. Uh, Jesus said famously, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. In other words, Jesus is saying, all of us are going to have to say a profound no to self if we're going to follow him. There are going to be yearnings, desires, longings that each disciple will have to say no to. I was talking to somebody not long ago, uh, someone who's not a, a Christian, and they were talking to me about some of these things, and they said, are you, are you telling me Jesus wants me to give him my sexuality? Are you really saying that? And I said, no. It's much worse than that. (laughs) Jesus wants your whole life. Every part of you. Jesus believes he's worthy of no less than that. Moreover, Jesus has this notion that there is no part of our lives that is going to be improved by holding it back from him. And it's going to be costly for any of us to follow him in the area of sexuality because all of us are going to have some sexual desires we need to say no to. So as I began to realize what some of this might mean for me, I didn't feel as though Jesus was giving me some bad deal because I realized actually Jesus is is putting a constraint on all of us. No one is getting everything their way. Jesus' message is challenging and humbling for every single one of us.
But Jesus isn't just challenging. Jesus is dignifying. Uh, think about that, that verse from Matthew 5 again. I say to you that everyone who looks with lustful intent has already committed adultery in their heart. That tells us something about the person doing the looking. We've seen that. But notice what Jesus is saying about the person being looked at. Jesus is saying that person has a sexual dignity that matters so much to him that it shouldn't be violated even in the privacy of someone else's mind. Jesus not only cares how we look at other people, Jesus cares how other people look at you. Jesus cares what other people do with your sexuality. And it's because we matter to him. Uh, one of the things we sometimes say today, I've heard many people say this is, you know, it's just, sex is just physical, it's just biology, it's just about bodily fluids. Why does it matter? Uh, another friend said to me, you know, we're just animals. It's all we are. And, and all creatures have that desire to, to mate. That's what this is. There's, there's nothing more going on. And I remember thinking, yeah, we, we say that. It's convenient to say that, but none of us believes that. Uh, my friend has a, a lovely golden retriever. Lovely up until the point he discovered certain feelings and became rather amorous of everything. And it occurred to me as I was trying to remove this retriever from my right leg <laughs> that I have never once seen an animal ask for consent. We're not just animals. We don't expect each other to just be animals. We say that because it's convenient, but we don't believe it. The Me Too movement has, has shown us that sex is not just physical because we've become more and more conscious that the damage done by abuse is more than merely physical damage. It's profoundly psychological. Sexual abuse affects so much more than the body because sex is designed to affect so much more than the body. Which is why it matters what we do with it. It matters what is done to our sexuality by somebody else, even just in their head. Jesus is dignifying, he's protective. But finally, Jesus is satisfying. Now, when we say sex is just physical, we're actually having too low a view of it. But at the same time, in, in Western culture, as, as Ashley has shown us, we also have too high a view of it because we think it is going to be sexual fulfillment that makes us complete. That is one of the, the most powerful cultural narratives that we absorb today. We think, I have to be sexually fulfilled in order to be whole. 
in order to be truly myself, in order to be authentic. And there's a reason why we look in that particular place for that sense of deep fulfillment. I'm told that the the English word sex comes from the Latin word sicari, which means to cut off, to amputate, to separate. And so behind our experience of sexuality is some awareness of being incomplete. Some awareness of feeling cut off from something we're meant to be part of. Some awareness of feeling separated from something. And so it's natural for us to think, well, actually, it's going to be sexual union that makes me feel complete. And so one of the things Jesus is doing is he's showing us that the ultimate disconnection we experience isn't sexual, it's spiritual. A couple of weeks ago, Ashley talked about the uh, impact of Freud. One of the things Freud talked about was how our desire for God is really a desire for sex. But Jesus reverses that. Jesus says, no, your desire for sexual completion is really your desire for God. Jesus shows us that our longing for sexual fulfillment is a picture of a deeper longing that we experience. It's a picture of a deeper union that we were made for. It's a picture of a greater form of intimacy that is available to us, that it's not going to be found in sexual fulfillment, but being found in knowing our Creator. Which is why Jesus didn't just call himself the Redeemer, the Christ, the Savior. He called himself the Bridegroom. Jesus is saying that beneath everything else we experience, there is a longing for a love relationship with our Creator. Throughout the Old Testament, God shows that He's not just the deity, He's a husband. That His people are not just His subjects, they are His cherished bride. And so when Jesus turns up in the Gospels and says, I am the bridegroom, the bridegroom is now here, Jesus is saying that it is going to be in him that we will fulfill our deepest longings, that he's come to give us that completion, and he does it by dying for us, because it is through his death Jesus goes through an ultimate form of sicari. Jesus was cut off in his death. Jesus was made incomplete in his death. Jesus was made unwhole in his death so that we could be drawn in. We could be filled up. We could be made complete. And that is what we find as we come to him. Now, one of my guilty pleasures is the movie Zoolander. Probably not a movie preachers are meant to to enjoy, but I I love the movie Zoolander. And the premise of the movie is that the more good-looking you are, the more stupid you are. 
which I, I personally find that very offensive. <laughs> and the main character, Zoolander, is a model, so he's profoundly stupid in the movie. And there's a scene in the movie where his friends decide they're going to open a school in his honor, in his name. And so to kind of announce it to him, they, they have an architect make a model of what the school's going to look like, and he's got his name over it. And so they invite him in. He comes in. He looks at this model, and he's furious. And I can hear some of you doing the line in your head right now. He says, is this a school for ants? He says, it needs to be three times bigger than this. Good looking, stupid. And that the ridiculousness is he's mistaken the model for the reality. He thinks that's the school. And Jesus is showing us every time we think romantic fulfillment will make our lives complete, we've mistaken the model for the real thing. Because God has given us sexuality to point beyond itself to that deeper need, that greater longing that we find in him. I've been a Christian for 30 years now. And out of obedience to Jesus, I've remained single for those 30 years. I've, I've not looked for a same-sex relationship. And there are times that's been painful. It can be painful saying no to some very deep longings in our hearts. And that's not just the case for those of us who might experience same-sex same -sex attraction. Living by Jesus' sexual ethic, that's difficult for all of us. My married friends share with me, it's, it can be hard for them. Jesus is not easy. But he is worth it. Because what I've come to learn from Jesus is that my ultimate sense of fulfillment and completion is not going to be contingent on my marital status. Marriage is a great gift from God if enjoyed in the right kind of context. But it's not the ultimate gift of God. Jesus is. So there have been times when I thought, man, I'd love to be married. I'd love to be a dad. But that is not the ultimate win. The ultimate win is Jesus. Knowing Jesus and then getting to know him more because that is the one relationship that will never disappoint. It is the one relationship that will never let us down. It is the one relationship that can satisfy us at the very deepest level. And that's what I have found to be true. Jesus isn't easy, but he is always good. 
Why does God care who I sleep with? God cares who I sleep with because God profoundly cares about the people doing the sleeping. I matter to him. You matter to him. God made each one of us. He thought you up. He came up with the idea of you. And he was having a good day when he did. He's made us in his image to know him and to reflect him. So as we come to sing of that, let me just lead us in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We recognize that his words are not easy. They so often cut across deep longings within us. But his words are always good. He dignifies us. Thank you that he loves us, that we matter to him, that we matter to you. And as we receive what Jesus has to say, give us faith. Help us to taste and see that the Lord is good, even in the difficult seasons. And would each of us come to cherish the unique gift of knowing the bridegroom, of knowing the God who made us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.